there are people throughout the world that have interesting stories to tell. Stories of heroism, acts of kindness, near-death experiences, successes, and failures. You usually hear of these stories from people that live in another state or country. But what about the stories from within your own community? Everyone has a story to tell. And by everyone, we mean your neighbor, your coworker, the person behind you at church, people you interact with on a daily basis, or maybe even you. Welcome to the DTV Podcast, presented by the Bless Your Heart Nonprofit Corporation. I'm Brennan Mathern, and I'll be your host as we speak to some of the most interesting people on Bayou Lafouche. In March of 2021, Devin Didon was named the new fire chief of Lafouche Parish Fire District Number 3, which serves the South Lafouche community. While he's a veteran firefighter who has seen his share of disasters, he had no idea what his first year would bring. Less than a month after becoming fire chief, he and his team assisted with the response when the Seacorp power vessel capsized just off the coast near Port Fouchon. And of course, in August, we endured the wrath of Hurricane Ida. But in those times of crisis, leaders and heroes emerge. On this episode, we'll talk to some of those leaders and heroes paving the way forward for Lafouche Fire District Number 3. Chief Devin Didon has brought with him some of his team, uh, Jada Petrie, as well as Lynn Rogers. Jada, Devin, Lynn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. So, like we do on every episode, first and foremost, uh, we want to get to know you guys and, and who we're talking to. So, if we just go around the room and tell us uh, who's your mom and dad, where are you from, and uh, where you went to school, things like that. My mom's Carolyn St. Pierre. My dad's George Buziga. Grew up in Golden Meadow. Uh, married Brittany Williams. Two kids, Mason and Sawyer. They both go to Golden Meadow Lower. Lynn Rogers. Married Michael Rogers, a.k.a. Picon. Uh, we have two children, Trittany and Anthony. I have five grandchildren. I've been at Lafouche Parish Fire District 3 for approximately 12, 13 years, on and off. Love my job. Love the place where I work. It's just in you to help out the community. Jada Petrie, daughter of Rhonda Gidry and the late Lynn Gidry. I'm the oldest of six children. Married Ryan Petrie, two sons, 15-year-old Luke Petrie and 12-year-old Jake Petrie. I've been with the fire district now for 18 years, serving in several different capacities. Well, thanks again for uh, for joining us here. So first, we want to talk about Fire District 3 for, for all of our listeners. Tell us about the specific area uh, y'all serve in and, and maybe a little bit about the history of the fire district. Okay, so Lafouche Parish Fire District 3 was established in 1959. It began as all volunteers and over the years became a combination department of career and volunteer firefighters working together to protect our community. Fire District 3 currently operates out of 14 stations with over 35 emergency vehicles. We have 41 full-time employees in four divisions, admin, communications, maintenance, and suppression eight part-time employees, and 74 volunteers. Our coverage area begins approximately two miles north of the Intercoastal Canal, covers Highway 24 to the Parish Line of Terrebonne, and down to the Jefferson Parish Line. In 2021, we responded to 1,273 emergency fire calls, and our dispatch center dispatched 4,297 emergencies for Lafouche Ambulance District 1. So awesome. Now, you mentioned the boundaries, and, and that was something I wanted to talk about uh, just for our listeners in Lafouche Parish. 
uh, just like so many of our of our different government uh, sections and and jurisdictions. Uh, everything has its own section, right? I mean, uh, so fire, you, you described that for Fire District 3. But, Devin, you guys all work together. There's The parish is along, and it it doesn't, uh, you know, and we've, we've talked with Parish President Archie Chasson before, uh, and, and not everything lends itself to having a centralized operation, and, and Fire Districts is, is one of those examples. Uh, so you guys have different vol- fire departments throughout the parish, but you all work together. Uh, you, you often train together and you do things together and you often respond to calls together. So talk about uh, that partnership with the other districts and how it works. Yeah, Brandon, we have a mutual aid agreement with every fire department in Lafouche Parish, an automatic aid agreement with Berg Fire Department in Terrebonne Parish. We also have a mutual aid agreement with Grand Isle Fire Department. So if there's any emergency that comes up close to that line or even far into their district, if they need help, they call us. And same thing, we'll call them if we need the help. Now, going back to uh, all of each of you individually, um, you, you mentioned your history and, and, and your personal information. Uh, let, let's talk about how each of you came to be with the, the fire department, how, how each of you uh, got started uh, on this career path. So I started as a volunteer with the Golden Medal Fire Department in 2003. And then in 2005, I got hired on as a firefighter, actually two weeks before Katrina. So, so you're you're all about this baptism by fire type stuff, right? I mean, <laughs> that's what it looks like. Jada. So I started um, in 2004 with the fire district. I actually went to put in my application for a civil service secretary and found out that a communications officer was available. Um, I am second generation fire department. Uh, my uncle was a chief, so I've always said I had smoke in my blood. So that's how it came to be. And Lynn. I believe I started um, volunteer first, my husband and I, and I guess it got in my blood. I enjoyed helping people out, so I applied for a communications job. I ended up getting that, and uh, I can't see myself doing anything else. I went work at the bank for about a year, and I don't like messing with people's money. I feel safer with their lives. As odd as that seems, it's just you have to have it in you in order to do some type of work like that. No, it definitely makes sense. So, guys, Fire District 3, like most first responding agencies, you put a heavy emphasis on training, obviously. Um, From dealing with meth labs to live fire uh, exercises, we'd love to hear about some of the types of training you guys have and also the importance of training not only amongst your own but but with other agencies. Yeah, Brandon, when you see... Some people look at firefighters and think that all they do is fight fires, but, you know, it's, it's a wide range. You could be rescuing cats, you know, animal <laughs> rescue, a bird out of a tree. Um, we have firefighters certified in airport firefighting, uh, high-angle rescue, confined space, hazmat, structural fires. Uh, we try to look at the fire service now as changing to an all-hazards approach and just be able to respond to whatever arises. Um, It's just trying to get our our firefighters trained and up to date on new technology. You know, when you look at vehicles coming out, electric vehicles, that changes the game for us. So it's just sending our firefighters to trainings and staying on top of it. Uh, And and what about training with with the other agencies? Um, You know, not just with other firefighters, but with law enforcement, with uh, EMTs and other services. 
How important is that for, for uh, real-world scenarios? It's very important to know these guys on, a, on the training field. You talk to them and you know who they are. You know how they're going to act and react on different scenes. Uh, every scene is different. Law enforcement is always there to help and protect us from uh, violence. You know, they get in, law enforcement gets in, scenes code four, we move in um, and help the community. I saw my producer's ears perk up when, when you said code four. So <laughs> explain, explain to our listeners what, what you meant by that. So when, when law enforcement gets in, they say it's code four, it, it's safe for us to come in, meaning weapons are, are put away and our firefighters are safe to come in. Okay. Um and, and, you know, like to your point, uh, the two of the biggest incidents that, that you've had in your first year is what I really wanted to talk about today. It's not just fires, uh, but, but certainly I'm sure you have uh, plenty of stories there and we'll definitely get to that. But um, one of the first major incidents uh, since you've been chief, uh, Devin, was uh, when the C-Corps power um, capsized right off the coast, uh, right off of our coast here in Port Fouchon. Um, talk about what your department did, how, how you responded initially, uh, what your involvement was, and what it was like having a national media event for your first major incident uh, in the first month of you being fire chief. Right. So leading up to the C-Corps power flipping, that day the weather was terrible right. in our area. Uh, before we even learned that there was a, a boat offshore that flipped, we had an 18-wheeler that flipped on the bridge. We had a security guard stuck in a guard shack in Fouchon. We had 11 different calls going on at the same time. And our firefighters, just like any other, they stepped up and handled them appropriately. Uh, later in the day, we find out that there's a boat that capsized offshore. We don't have a vessel to get there. So Coast Guard was already out there and set up a staging area at MI in Fouchon. We responded to that location. That's where they were going to bring the victims in to be uh, turned over to Lafouche Ambulance. So firefighters went out to that location to assist. And it was just from that point, family members started showing up. We had to create a staging area. We brought them to the fire station, get them out of the rain, give them food, give them water, and just comfort them as best we can. Lynn, I understand uh, you were part of that effort, and and you uh, not just that day, but but in the days after. Uh, and I've I've talked to so many people, uh, even from the the Lafouche Parish Sheriff's Office, uh, who were really uh, really involved on on that end of things, especially with the victims' families. Talk about your experience and and what uh, you know in, in dealing with the families after that incident. Yeah, this incident kind of hit close to me. Um, my brother actually works for the same company. My brother actually worked with every single man on that vessel. Wow. My brother was trained by the captain of that boat. So it kind of hit hard. Um, he wasn't at work at the time. And when I found out it was the Secor Power and it was one of his vessels, um, all I can feel was that could be me. I could be waiting for my brother, word on my brother. Um, still hits hard today. I, I guess the type of person I am, because I am a 911 dispatcher, I have a big heart. I like helping out people. I try to put myself in their shoes, that if something happened to me, somebody would step up. So when uh, Devin had came in and asked, you know, anybody wanted to help, I was more than willing. I came in on my days off. I stayed extra. 
I comforted the families, helped feed them, talked to them, wiped their tears, anything. But it's like, what do you say to these people? You know, and um, I just put myself in those shoes. What would have happened if it would have been for me? Interestingly enough, uh, earlier this year, uh, Louisiana Governor uh, John Edwards uh, and made made uh, the significant uh, march toward recognizing dispatchers as first responders. Uh, so, in just what you do normally, how was this uh, experience uh, of getting from out from behind the phone line, so to speak, and, and actually being on the front lines, even though it wasn't fighting a fire, uh, you were still conducting a very important public service. Just sometimes it's, you know, we don't get as a dispatcher, we are the first of communication. We send everybody we need, but then sometimes it's we don't find out the outcome. And sometimes we are, we're lucky we get the outcome, you know, and this and that, but being on the front line and actually feeling and seeing these people gives you so much of a different type of emotion because once you're on the phone you know we're, we're trained we train all year long in fact I just took like five or six tests over the weekend to keep my certifications up and upgrade and this and that um, when you go out in front of these people it's you put all your training into perspective you you put it out what you've learned and you try to help them as much as you can but you also want to be human to them also you don't want to be like a robot right. and do what you got to do. But, um, yeah, it's it's challenging being on the other side. So I tell all these firefighters, I don't know if I could do what y'all do. But then they say, I don't know I could do what you do. You know, it's everybody's just meant for something in their life. And, I mean, I've done the volunteering, and I'd rather be behind the phone. And, Jada, uh, the, this incident, uh, this one, I, I remember the Facebook post of, uh, of Devin and another one of the firefighters, uh, somebody from the sheriff's office as well as one of the, the children uh, who, who's, who's, I believe their father was involved in the incident. Um, from a social media aspect, I know you do some of the social media work for the fire department. What, uh, what was it like at that point, and, and again, moving forward, uh, seeing all the positive response from the community for the things that you guys feel is just your your day to day work, and even in something like this that really isn't in your job description, and it, it doesn't feel like you're doing a lot when you show a kid a fire truck, but in that moment, that that made all the difference, and it was a very popular post. So, like a like Lynn said earlier, we got to know these people, and the difference between just taking that call as a 911 dispatcher, they don't put your face to that call to that to that emergency. Um, unfortunately, we never get to talk to somebody that's having a great day. But what surprises me still 18 years later is that I can take a call from somebody in our community and see them later on at the grocery store and they have no clue it's me who talked to them. So the difference when C-Corps power happened is our dispatchers became the face of our fire department rather than, and the firefighters helped out too, but the dispatchers truly stepped up. Um, we were going to all the meetings that they were having with the families, and we just became friends with them, you know, and, and like she said, just offered a shoulder. And that little boy just wanted to be a firefighter. So, I mean, to to turn a smile from a tear, you know, all he wanted was a fire hat and to see a fire truck. And the least we can do at that point is make that kid's dream come true. Well, that that, that theme of trying to fill the the need uh, wherever it is uh, would certainly come in handy a few months later 
um, in August when Hurricane Ida struck. And and I want to talk about that. And, and each of you are welcome to chime in on any of these topics. But uh, I want to concentrate on Hurricane Ida because uh, your agency was really put in the spotlight, uh, especially in the immediate aftermath of the storm and, and afterwards for all the work, uh, the incredible work that, that you guys did. Uh, but but let's rewind to right before. Uh, as a fire district, what are you doing to prepare for a Cat 4, possible Cat 5 hurricane? Uh, take us back to the days, you know, the Friday, the Saturday, right before leading up. Uh, what are you guys doing? So we have uh, protocols that we follow. Three days before, we start filling up all the trucks, securing all of our um, loose material around the station, picking up garbage cans, things like that. We send out a message to all of our firefighters. That way we start getting a game plan of who's thinking about evacuating, who's staying. But at this point, let's remember, three days before, it's just a tropical storm. Exactly. You know, and we look at it as just a tropical storm. Nobody's evacuating at this time. So 72 hours later, we're looking at a, a Cat 4 knocking on our door. And, and you know we really have to get a handle of who's staying and who's going. And unfortunately, we knew that a lot of people would stay in the community. We just driving around asking people, you leaving, you staying. Most, a lot of people were staying. Um, and it's just to get that handle of where people is going to be located. We knew one of the most important parts of this community was Lady of the Sea Hospital. Not because it's a hospital, it's because the levy district is staying at the hospital. And if we have to make sure that the levy district is protected, if the levy fails, we fail. So we made sure to keep constant con communication with uh, Kevin John. He was he works. He's a levy district employee. So throughout the the beginning of the storm, he calls and tells us we stay in at the hospital. You know, throughout the event, we back and forth as long as the phones are working. Uh, you know, we were. Once the roof blew off the hospital, we checked on him. He said, yeah, we're fine, we're okay. So the levy district is a big part of, of this. You know, a lot of people uh, may overlook that, but them guys put a lot of work in to protect this community. You, you touched on a few things there that I want to go back to. Um, as first responders, you, you try to help the public understand the importance of evacuating. And one of those is that emergency services may not be able to get to you uh, during the height of the storm. Miraculously, as we've pointed out many times, there were no deaths during the storm, but we definitely heard some horror stories from people that, that stayed behind. And many of us saw images of that uh, home fully engulfed uh, during the height of the storm. What was it like for you all, uh, and, and we can get each of your accounts, riding out the storm knowing there was nothing you could truly do uh, for anybody. And, and you mentioned the levy system. W was that in the back of your mind? W were you, w were your firefighters concerned? Did you have young guys that had never been through something like this or anything close to it? Uh, how did you keep up morale? Uh, talk about your experience during, you know, while you were sheltered in place, so to speak. So before the storm actually hit, we had the conference calls with Lafourche Parish government and all the agencies. We also have, uh, USAR team. So Fire District 3 and Homo Fire Department is part of a USAR program uh, under the fire marshal's office. So we had our own conference call on the side. The fire marshal's office had boats staging in Lafayette to send in to this location if the levees were to fail. So we just prepared 
to have multiple agencies coming in to help us if that happens. And I can I can tell you this, the house that was engulfed, that was probably the hardest decision Devin made to tell 30 firefighters that we couldn't go put out a fire. I mean, he got a lot of uh, feedback that wasn't necessarily happy. You know, I mean, we it's it's engraved ingrained in us that we are to help. You know, so telling 30 firefighters that they can't put out a fire when we're getting picture after picture after video, um, that was a difficult decision. And unfortunately, we would have gotten there safely, most likely, but we would not have been able to come back. Yeah, and that was the thing I was looking at. You know, the safety of our people was number one. Uh, they issued a mandatory evacuation. We told the people when the conditions got too bad, we would not be responding. So I had to stick to that. When, when the wind speed got to that, where I thought it could blow the truck over, then we just can't come. You know, we stayed at the station. The members, uh, and, and look, shortly after I told them we, we're not going to be responding, the call started coming in. We received a call for a uh, structure fire. It was on the east side in Galliano. And I just told the guys, look, there's no way. I believe we can make it there. I don't think we can make it back. Uh, we received multiple calls right after that. Uh, roofs collapsing. Uh, one guy called and said, I'll be in the dryer on East 123rd in the laundromat. Uh, and all we can do is document this. You know, somebody else calls. Uh, we get another call. Uh, dispatch documents another roof collapse. Four people inside. Uh, and we had to tell these people, once the conditions are better, we're going to come. Now, how many people tried calling after the phones went down, you know, we don't know. But we had pages and pages of calls. I think it was 14 pages of calls that we that, were able to. Uh, uh, documenting, you know, people trapped. We're getting in the bathtub. We're going into the attic. Uh, North Atlanta Coastal, they, they realized that their street was flooding, and they didn't know how high it would get. So they got scared. They remembered... Katrina, New Orleans, so they called and said, we're going into the attic, and we'll be in the attic. Come rescue us. Uh, at that point, after probably 10 pages of, uh, of calls, uh, we had a staff meeting while the storm was going on. We all get together. We say a prayer. And I told them, Whoever, who in here drove a school bus before? And... Nobody raised their hand. Two of them raised their hand and said, my mom drives a school bus. <laughs> I said, well, you're the you're bus qualified. driver. <laughs> you're That's the bus exactly driver. <laughs> so you could drive a fire truck. I'm sure you could drive a school bus. Well, they did. So I said, I don't care how you get it, hot wire it, whatever you got to do. We're going to send the mechanics with you, but we're going to take the school buses. We need two of them. Uh, that's when the winds are going to die down. We're going to take it. Our mechanic looks across the street and sees a front-end loader. Said, okay, we're going to take that front-end loader too because we're going to need to clear the streets to be able to get to these addresses. So the mechanic goes across. The keys are on the front-end loader. We didn't have to hotwire it. <laughs> so. And the first thing he did was clear the road so the levee district can leave the hospital. Right. He went straight to the hospital, cleared that road for the levee district to be able to get on the road uh, and, and start going to the pump stations and make sure we don't have a breach in the levee. Uh, he made his way to Fire Central to check on operations and see if we could have operations there once it was safe to get out. Uh, 
the building at Fire Central sustained major damage, but we was able to get in there and, and keep operations going. Everything switched over to a USAR approach. We was not responding as a fire department at this time. We were responding as a USAR approach, search and rescue, and only going to the addresses where we knew we had people trapped. The school buses went and set up kind of like lily pads. Uh, we would go rescue the people, bring them to the school bus. At the same time, I sent two firefighters to break into the Galliano school and open the gym to set up a shelter because there's nowhere to bring them. We had previously got uh, MREs and water from Lafourche Parish government. They helped us after Zeta and gave us them MREs, and we already had that. So we brought it to the shelter. Two firefighters stayed around the clock at the shelter with the individuals that were brought there by the school bus. Just just an outstanding story, and, and it shows you, one, I'm, I'm glad we're telling it, because for one, hopefully people listening to this understand not only the danger that they're putting themselves in, but one of the other things that we don't talk about enough, I guess, as when we talk about evacuations is, look, you may not care about yourself, but think about the people that have to respond. Because as you just pointed out, you were having to hold guys back, essentially, that wanted to go out in the midst of the worst hurricane, maybe, that, that Lafouche Parish has ever seen, to go put out a fire, let alone rescue people. To When you stay after in a mandatory evacuation, you're putting yourself in harm's way, but you're putting first responders in harm's way because... I guess there's no uh, switch to flip off to say, oh, well, it's a hurricane. You'll just have to wait. It just doesn't happen. Uh, and look, and to your credit and to your point, you talked about going out that night after the hurricane. Uh, you were one of the only agencies that went out. Um, sheriff's office, parish government, everybody knew when they sheltered in place that they were going out at first light in the morning. Why? Simple. There was no light. There was no electricity anywhere. So all the things that you're describing with school buses and, and a front-end loader, we're talking about pitch-black conditions, essentially, uh, at 9, 10 o'clock at night uh, or, and later. Um, for, for someone that hasn't been here and hasn't experienced that, talk about what that is like, being in, in you know, post-catastrophic you know, hurricane with no electricity, not a single light on. No electricity and... Probably the hardest part was no water. You know, let's, yes. let's remember we had no water. So going out after that, there was no way I can tell 30 firefighters to go to sleep. We were not going to sleep. We knew we had 12 pages, 15 pages of people that are trapped in their house. We had to get to them. And there was nothing going to stop us besides a hurricane. The hurricane had died down enough for us to get out. So we started. And not many people know, but Rue de Villiers, ran USAR operations for the state, and he lives in Golden Meadow. So he lives in Golden Meadow. I said, look, we need to get him. We know he's home. He retired a week before the storm, two weeks before the storm. So I sent firefighters at the same time they're getting the school buses and breaking into the school and clearing the road to the hospital. Another team of firefighters is going to get Rule out of his house. So we went, we picked Rule up and brought him to Fire Central. And he helped coordinate the USAR response. Uh, he left his wife and family at the house with no electricity. And 
his neighbor was helping fix the, the generator. You know, his neighbor stepped up and said, look, go and help the people and I'm going to come and help, you know, your family. So just, I think people don't realize, but we live in the best community in the world. When you look at neighbors helping neighbors, this is the place. You know, we had people step up, what can I do to help? Not firefighters, just regular everyday citizen come with their tractor and they're helping us clear the road. Forklift operators that usually work in Fouchon, we commandeer the forklift also. So the forklifts, we commandeer the school buses, the front end loader, forklift, and boats. The boats were used on Hamilton Street in La Rose and, and that community. And like you said, just different citizens. Uh, myself and one other firefighter was, was given the duty to go to each fire station and what do the trucks look like? What do the stations look like? You know, report back what we're dealing with, you know, with these 14 stations. And this citizen just pulled up, and we were at West Cutoff, and he said, I need help. My neighbor is stuck in her house. She will not leave. And this is Tuesday morning. So this woman had been in her bathtub since Saturday. So when we got to her house, we walked through the wall. Didn't use the door, walked through the wall. Uh, was able to help her out of the house and get her to Galleon Elementary and get her fed, you know, and, and have something to drink. But she had been in her bathtub for that long. And, and Lynn, we heard from Devin's perspective on, you know, from the firefighter side of knowing all these things are happening and you can't do anything and you feel hopeless. But I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and you're getting the phone calls. Yes. What do you tell someone in, in those situations? My thing was um, my husband and I decided to stay. Uh, deep down inside, I guess, Hurricane Zeta kind of like blinded me because I worked for Zeta also. It was like, it was nothing. You know, I'm going to stay for this one. Y'all go do whatever. Um, working up in dispatch, when I'm getting these phone calls, my job is to send help. I couldn't. It killed me inside. And all I could tell these people is, I'm very sorry. Give me your name, your phone number, your address, exactly how many people you have in your household, what's going on. As soon as these winds die down, we will go out after y'all. We will help y'all. So the other dispatcher and I, what we did was we made a list of priority one, two, three. We went up to like maybe four, five, six. My priority one was anybody trapped, roofs collapsed, tree on the house. Like this guy here, he was in the dryer. He was safe. That's his safety right there. Once everything kind of calmed down and Chief told us, okay, look, we're going to get a game plan. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. The other dispatcher stepped up and went to work, and I came down, and um, I volunteered to drive the two firefighters, to LaRose to pick up school buses. Um, driving there, I actually got to see my house, my daughter's house, my son's house. I think maybe that's why I kind of volunteered uh, <laughs> to do it because I was blinded. I was in a room with no windows. And, look, I felt safe. I was safe. We went out there, um, seen all the damage. We were bobbing live wires going through telephone poles trees cows 
I had never experienced that. I am going to be 52 years old. Never have I ever seen a storm do so much damage. And to know how many people stayed on this bayou. And I don't know if they felt like I did that Zeta, you know, came and went in a couple of hours. This storm lingered for hours and hours and hours. It was so hard to do my job knowing I couldn't send anybody out. And once we got that house fire, you know, and then I started seeing pictures, they come show me and it's like, man, you know, look, there's nothing I can do. And normally you get a phone call and like you said, you send help. Normally, within seconds, I'm sending somebody out to you. You're having to make a list and then triage the calls. Yes. Uh, and yes. and and then try to and then figure out the priority and then ultimately but and and then you still have to sit and wait. You still have to sit and wait, and you're still getting these phone calls coming in, and you can hear this, you know, the the fear in these people's voices, and there's they calling you for help. I am the front person, and I felt like I was just letting them down. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't send out my people. Once Chief decided, look, it's safe for us to go out, this and that, what y'all got? Oh, I was just pulling papers out. Here, this, 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 reading this, this. And he got his team going. And actually, I think I, I went out to a couple of them because I was relieved by another dispatcher. So I got to take a break, but didn't take a break. The primary search was done by 4 o'clock in the morning. So we went out at 8 o'clock, I believe, at night. And then the primary search was done by 4 o'clock in the morning. That's everyone that called in before the phones went down. We searched them houses. Uh, I know there's hundreds of other people that tried to call after. There was just no way of getting through because of the phone service. At that point, we had to set up a grid and start searching the next day, street by street, house by house. And, and some of these houses was total collapse. I really thought that we was going to find people with dogs after it was all said and done. And we were lucky. Devin, you mentioned earlier about living in this community. And, and I think when you ask most first responders in that, that live and work in Lafouche, I think they would agree with your statement about this being one of the best places to live. And Obviously, you know, your, your police, firefighters, they're all a reflection of the community because they are the community. Um, and I, I, I think, in fact, Sheriff Weber had even mentioned that, uh, it, you know, a few days after the storm that uh, they are this community. They, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not people that just came in and they, they started doing this immediately because this was their community. This is their home. And on that note, uh, I, I know just like everyone else, uh, that that's uh, like pretty much every building in this parish was touched, uh, and as we went further south, uh, there was obviously more damage. So that means a lot of your personnel had damage. You guys probably all had some level of damage uh, at your home. Talk about that aspect of it, uh, and and dealing with uh, again personnel. Um, yeah, as a fire chief, uh, just dealing with personnel and making sure people are coming to work, but also attending to their personally and what they need. And I know you guys went out and put a lot of tarps on roofs and helped with those aspects as well. So talk about all those efforts in, in the aftermath and, and how you guys all dealt with that. So after the search and rescue operations were complete, we broke up into teams and said, we will go put tarps on 
firefighters' roofs. There's no way we're going to be able to cover every house in the community. So the first responders that were going to be staying at the station, we was able to make it to most of our responders. There was one north of the coastal that uh, there was flood water on the roadway and we were not able to make it to his house. Um, and his house was total, a total loss. You know, most of our firefighters had heavy damage. 31 of them were displaced and could not live at their house. Wow. Uh, and we had 45 people that stayed. But let's touch on on the community again and, and the business. You know, some of these businesses were, were completely destroyed and they were giving us the food out of it, Rouse's and Golden Meadow, you know, giving us the food of what's left. Feed the firefighters, feed the first responders. So we went in a couple of days later, we, we received that food from them. Tom's gave us all the, the tire equipment because, you know, we opened up a tire <laughs> shop. And we, we probably fixed uh, a couple hundred flat tires, you know, plugging them. Some tires had five and six plugs. And that was fire trucks, police cars, ambulance, whatever it was, uh, we, we fixed it. Um, the Cutoff Youth Center gave us food. Cutoff Youth Center, you know, whatever food they had in their freezers. The state reps, you know, Brian Fontenot called and said, hey, what I can do to help? You know, at this time, our trucks, we're starting to need fuel. You know, he, he brings fuel down. The firefighters from the neighboring departments they are getting swamped and they're still calling to see if they can help us you know and they helped us by clearing the road to get our people out of the shelter and bring them to the shelter in Thibodeau so every day after the storm we at four o'clock we'd run the school bus from Galliano to Thibodeau to bring the evacuees and we did this for about a week I received a call from a priest in Thibodeau and I don't, I don't have his name but he called and he said what do y'all need from us and I said, look, I'm looking at 100 firefighters and I can't feed them. We just don't have the manpower to cook. We don't have the supplies to feed them. That's what I need help with. And that priest coordinated food, a hot meal, at least one hot meal a day for all of our first responders. We had sheriff's office coming in. We had LED coming in. Uh, our firefighters were fed at least one hot meal a day. So that was a, a huge help to keep our guys going. So the reason we had 100 firefighters here to help us is because the fire marshal's office coordinated with other states to get firefighters from Florida, Texas, and within our state, St. George Fire Department, Beauregard Fire Department, and Calcasieu Fire Departments. They came down to help us uh, just to give our guys a break and let them go home for a couple hours and, and help clean up their yards and see their families. But... We can't thank them enough. You know, one of the calls they went on was a carbon monoxide call, and we didn't really touch too much on it yet, but carbon monoxide was a big deal for our area. And we had so many alarms going off, and it was not just an alarm. It was actual carbon monoxide where we had patients at the house of sick. These Texas firefighters respond to a house in Galliano, and when they get there, there's a generator running close to the house, and there's a tripwire tied to the generator with a, a rifle pointing at the generator. And it is in order to stop the criminal from stealing the generator. 
so firefighters, police officers, and all, all responders have to be aware of their surroundings. And when the firefighters from Texas came back to the station, they said, wow, you people are crazy. <laughs> Look, we responded to this call, and there's a gun, a tripwire, waiting to shoot us. I'm like, you know, the people's just protecting their, their property. You know, I, I don't know what to tell you. Wow. Well, and I know we could talk probably forever about these stories, but um, this has given, I think, the uh, the listeners uh, a great perspective of a couple of things. One, like we like we kind of alluded to earlier, this is the danger and this is the 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 concern about you staying. It's not just about your well-being. It's about you putting others in danger. But. On the other hand, I think that we also have learned through time and time again, through countless storms, and, and this one included, um, you know, the, the parish officials, while they were concerned uh, prior to, there was no concern about being prepared. I think every, and, and I, I get that sense from you guys too, um, while we knew that this was going to be the worst we'd faced, we faced many things before, and we faced many hurricanes. And so I hope that the listener also gets that while we don't want you to stay at the same time. We're prepared. And 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 first responders are in Lafouche Parish from top to bottom are going to be ready to answer the call when it happens. Uh, but that's just another reason why you don't have to stay, because they're they're gonna protect your your property, they're gonna help uh, the community, and it's still gonna be there. And the most important thing is you're gonna be there. I think for every person who can say, Oh no, so and so stayed and they were fine. Well, that's good for them, but we've just heard about the pages and pages of phone calls that people called terrified uh, because they were stuck in their house. There was rising water. They had, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, so for every person that you talked to that was fine, I'm, I'm sure that you guys can name uh, a dozen that, that weren't. And and that's, I think, maybe one of the most important messages that, that we get out from this show. Um, Devin, Jada, Lynn, if let, let's shift gears for, for our last question and talk about uh, where we're going past Hurricane Ida. Uh, what's the status of the fire department's uh, equipment, your, your stations, uh, your structures? And what can we see, what do you see as the future, uh, especially, Chief, uh, your vision for, for the fire department going forward? So before the storm, we, we took some of our equipment and brought it to Raceland. We didn't want to keep all of our equipment in South Lafouche something happens with the levee, we don't want to lose it all. So we brought some equipment up there and we staged it there. That way, if, if we lost everything down here, we still have trucks to respond with. We would have brought them back down. So we, every one of our stations this, was damaged. Uh, 14 stations all received damage. Five of them major damage and most likely will be replaced, total replacement. And we're still navigating the red tape to try to uh, receive federal funding. We had insurance, but just like everyone else, the cost of material has gone up so much that the insurance we had is not enough to cover and replace the buildings. 35 uh, emergency vehicles to respond, we still have that. In the future, we are looking to, I hope we, our funding comes back. We rely solely on property tax. So when these buildings got damaged, that means our funding is cut. So we lost almost $1.7 million. Hopefully people rebuild. It looks like it's happening. Uh, slowly it's coming back. Businesses are opening. Um, 
we hoping that we can get back to where we was with funding to be able to hire people. Because when people left to move to other areas, we just could not replace them. So we are operating with less employees now, less volunteers. Now, we rely heavily on volunteers. Our volunteer department, 76 volunteers, covers a lot of ground. Um, and we couldn't do it without our volunteers. So we need to make sure that if you're listening and, and you want to volunteer to a uh, fire department, we always accepting applications. Uh, training is, is always ongoing. You're always going to learn new things. And, and we would love to have you. And I think that's a great way to, to kind of start wrapping things up. Uh, guys, we're going to do this uh, rapid-fire question round. Uh, we do this with all of our guests, so uh, we'll kind of transition to some of the serious topics, and we'll have a little fun for a change. Uh, so we'll go around the room, and we'll go Devin, Lynn, Jada for each of these. Uh, but we'll start with Devin for our first question, uh, and, and you'll each have a chance to answer each of them. But what's your go-to order at a down-the-bayou restaurant? So I go to McDonald's every day. <laughs> Multiple times a day. <laughs> so um, You need to tell them how you, your son's first words were to order at McDonald's. Yeah, it was the first word at McDonald's because I go there every day. But Sheremy's fried shrimp uh, is probably the best. Lynn? Oh, Harry's po' boy, no doubt. What you got to be more beef. specific. Oh, there Rose you go. Beef to the elbows. <laughs> My go-to is Mommy Joe's grilled chicken on jalapeno bread. I've tried to convert so many people to that jalapeno bread. I'm gonna write that one down. Uh, it's delicious. After. And it's bang bang shrimp. It's not just fried shrimp. Oh, I'm I'm with you there. Uh, at Cheremy's too. Uh, okay, so Devin, what is your favorite Cajun word or phrase and its meaning? Let's start with Jada. I'd have to say shawls, just because you can you can stick it as a verb, as a whatever you want, <laughs> and it works. It just replaces any word in the dictionary. So I'd go with shawls. That is very true. Uh, my husband will say this. Uh, I guess my favorite word is bruh. I call him, he tells me something like, bruh, you know, he's like, I'm not your bruh. I guess it's just a go-to, you know, it's like, I could say it in, to anyone. I, I like hearing the bruh on the female side too, bruh. though, like it comes out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Shaws would be it, because I think we use it so much. Um, it's heavily used in the fire service. Go grab that shawls on the truck. It's the a whatever. Shows. It's... <laughs> And I guess there would be the words that you can't really say. <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah, I had to think about that Moving one Moving on, Devin. Uh, what's, your, what's your favorite snowball flavor? Strawberry. Cherry coconut. Cherry coconut, okay. I do not like snowballs. What? So my go-to is a Butterfinger Blast from Sonic. Okay, well, I, I can't be mad about that. So our next question is for the next hurricane, staying or evacuating. But we all know what y'all answers are going to be uh, because you work for the fire district. Uh, but once again, we'll just you know point back to all of the conversations we had. And we hope that people uh, take the cue to evacuate. Uh, but we know you guys are going to stay and, and serve the community. So we'll move on to our hot topic right now uh, in Cajun social media, if you will. Jambalaya or pasta laya? Jambalaya. Uh, jambalaya. Pasta I love that everybody knows what they like. They don't. No one has to think about this. Everybody knows what they're gonna say. That and that's that's a good thing. I don't even care which one you choose, as long as you know 
which one? So Chief Devin Didon, Lynn Rogers, Jada Petrie, thank you all so much for joining us. We really appreciate all this insight, especially all the great stories uh, from the hurricane. Uh, before we go, Jada, tell us how we can follow Fi Fire District 3 online. So we have a Facebook page, Lafouche Parish Fire District 3, and we put out a lot of our training on there, a lot of our uh, happenings in the community. We try to be pretty active in that. So Lafouche Parish Fire District 3 on Facebook. All right. Thank you all so much again for, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And that'll do it for this episode of the DTB Podcast. Thanks to our producer, Ross Jambon, our executive producers, Jure Gyro and Hillary Crum, and the rest of the Bless Your Heart nonprofit board members, Luke Newman and Chris Brantley. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the DTB Podcast on Facebook, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also get more content by following us on Twitter and TikTok at the DTB Podcast. I'm Brennan Mathern. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.